We are back with another great episode of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. And as I have said before, everyone in our community has a story. And all of these stories have their twists and turns that have brought them to this point in their journey. We also feel that these stories would bring us closer as a community and introduce you to some people who you may not ever have met as they tell their stories in their own words. Also, we hope that you have new insights into people that live next door or people that you have known for years. There is no shortage of these stories, and we will attempt to tell them all. My name is Marty Lockman. And today's episode is brought to you with the generous support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years. AT&T, who reminds us, it can wait, don't drive distracted. And Back Nine Greens, whose work is known worldwide. Remember that golf art starts with Back Nine Greens. Our guest for this episode is John Meisenbach, who has been a member of our community since 1998. John has had a long and storied career with tremendous success. But John's story has the humble beginnings that many guests have had. And John is very humble himself. So we are very happy that he chose to tell his story that starts in Bozeman, Montana. John, please take us on your journey. I was born in, as you mentioned, uh, Bozeman, and my mom and my dad were from uh, Montana. They were uh, in the Depression, uh, 1936. Uh, I was born. Both of them had to leave, uh, have to leave school after the sixth grade because um, at those days you had to go to work. So you'd go to school till the sixth grade, then you'd leave. That's like graduation, and you go to work. And so my mom had 13 children in her mom's family. My, her dad was a coal miner in Stockett, Montana. And my dad was put in an orphanage, uh, even though his, he had a sister that was, went with her father. But so he was, he was in an orphanage, which I think had an impact on him his entire life. Anyhow, going back to me, I was born in in Bozeman, and then almost immediately we, we, uh, I moved to uh, California to live with my aunt and my uh, uh, uncle and my cousin, and my dad went in the, in the Army. He stayed there until the end of the war. I was in California for a while in Bakersfield, and then we moved to San Bernardino where I was living with eight women, uh, <laughs> which I've never had the fortune to have that happen again. But anyhow, <laughs> I was with uh, living with eight women with eight sisters and my mom. And I was the only child, incidentally, in my family. So you can imagine how spoiled I, I was. Uh, as an example, of, my mom was working in a bakery, and I was, gosh, I don't know how old I was at that time. I must have been in the third grade or something like that, maybe the second or third grade. And so I was always trying to play jokes on people. I took a bunch of some ketchup and I poured it on my chest. And then I jumped behind the Davenport and I laid there hoping that somebody would find me and scream and, you know, it would be the, the house the woman that was taking care of me. 
Well, I, uh, no one found me. I fell asleep, and I was, as I slept, uh, obviously the, the uh, ketchup dried. And the, my, the, the housekeeper was uh, quite upset because she thought I'd been taken because I just disappeared. And so all, in, the, in the community, there were a lot of maybe 10 or 15 little condominium-type residences. And so they're all out looking for me, thinking that you know the next thing I was going to do was <laughs> to call the national police or whoever. And, and so uh, someone found me behind the bed, on this couch. But by that time, the, the blood had dried, and it was looked like I was <laughs> dead. So I, and so obviously, I, I never heard the end of that story as, as I got older. So that was, it was, it was, and I loved it when I was a little kid. I loved playing jokes on people, and I've, and I've always had that feeling. It was just, it's always been fun to laugh and to play jokes, and, and, and as well as people on, on me. I started there. I, my dad came home, and we moved to Buckley, Washington, which is a small town. Kind of a logging town in Washington, and I was got in a fight every day of the week because kids, I would, these kids hadn't seen anybody new moved in the city forever, and here this kid came in, and I was, you know, California kid, and they 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 didn't take to that real well, and so every day I was I was every day I was in some sort of a fight, which is is just funny. And anyhow, over the years I became accepted. We had a I had a good time. In, this high school now, you know, and this is grade school. Grade school. Yeah. You're now. Being raised in uh, hard times. So, uh, tough times, yeah. Tough, tough times. times yeah. My dad started a little variety store in, in uh, Buckley. He had been with Woolworths before the, when, when he got out of school where he was raised and, and uh, did pretty well. And then he went in the Army, just like everybody else did at that time. And so he, he opened up a little variety store, got, a, got a, some sort of a GI loan, I think, and... Uh, and my mom and he went to work in his variety store and, and actually was doing okay. It was I mean, never made any money of any consequence, but it was enough to feed us. And, uh, you know, but he was always, uh, he was always uh, having a tough time. He just, it was, his whole life was tough. But my mom, on the other hand, was probably the nicest person, nicest lady I've ever met. And I always thought I had sort of, my dad was tougher than nails. I always thought I had both <laughs> both personalities. I could be tough, and I could be very generous and very kind. And so it's, you know, it's, I'm sure they both rubbed off on me. So I went through high school. I did well in school, and I played the trumpet, and I, you know, and I was involved in all the sports. And it was a pretty exciting time for me. And so I decided I wanted to go to college, but I didn't have any money, and my folks didn't have any money. I remember one night I was mopping floors with lye. You know, and I was it was it was about one or two o'clock in the morning, and I was thinking, you know, uh, I, all these my buddies were all out with their girlfriends and in their cars and, and having a time, and I was sitting here mopping, and I thought, you know, this is this is going to pay off. I'm gonna I'm gonna be able to go to college. So I was smart enough at that time, which surprises me, that to join the Navy, because I thought I had, I would get a scholarship. I remember I told my dad, I said, I'm going to join the Navy. For two years, and then at the end of at the end of two years, they're going to give me a four-year scholarship. He says, <laughs> "No one's going to do that." You know, I mean, that's just kind of not so, in his realm of possibility. No, 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 couldn't do it. And that's exactly what happened. And so I joined the Navy. I, I, I asked for the the most uh, significant um, payment plan that they could give me, or salary, I guess you'd call it. And I joined the submarine service. And so I was on a submarine for for a little over two years. Uh, we were overseas one time, and that was in uh, Acapulco, <laughs> and so that was, <laughs> that was that was our entire service, and, and the, there was no war. We were not in any danger at all. But it was really interesting duty, and, and in the submarine service, my commanding officer recommended me to go to uh, Annapolis, 
as an enlisted man, they have to have this program where they could take people out of this that were in the service and 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 I almost went, and the other uh, officers on the on the uh, we called it the boat on the boat discouraged me. Said, you know, you know, you go if you come to you go to Annapolis, you're going to be there four years. You've had two years here, and then they're going to make you stay another four years to, for service. So you're going to have ten years of your life is going to be in in the in the Navy, and if that's not your chosen profession. You know, that's been a mistake. And so I went, I, I left the Navy in, in two years and went back to Buckley and, and uh, applied to go to college. I only applied for one school, which is Seattle University, and that's because the O'Brien twins, which were basketball freaks, actually. They were, in, you know, five feet something, and they both of them could dunk the ball. And, and I, incidentally, become, I became great friends with them later in life. I uh, went to Seattle University. I just applied for one. I didn't, I didn't know anything about pri- private schools. I didn't know about... University of Washington. I just had heard the O'Brien kids play uh, basketball, and so I, I decided that's what I, wa- I was going to do. So I, I applied to Seattle University. Unfortunately, I was it was accepted and went to school there at CLU and, and majored in in, in uh, I wanted to go to law school. I thought that's what I, all the teachers said. I'm always arguing with them that I should be a lawyer. I decided that's what I was going to do, and I went to and I so I worked hard. And, had, I had all sorts of jobs. I was milking cows. Uh, I was, you know, I was uh, selling equi- office equipment. I was, you know, there's a million things I was doing. Where did this drive, John, come from for education? Yeah. Because most of your peers right. were not going yeah, on the same true. career path as you. My mom, she just said, you're going to college. And I, she I, realized the importance. Right. And I don't think she, you know, I mean, she didn't realize the cost of it or anything else, but she was going to, you know, I was going to go to college. And so she was, you know, an only child. And, you know, anyhow, she was, she was an amazing woman. I get, a, I go to Seattle University. I get started in there and, and uh, I did, I did okay. I majored in pre-law, but it was tough. I, re, I had one job after another and I decided, okay, so now I met this girl and we got married just as I was leaving uh, school. And sure enough, she got pregnant, and so to go to law. And so I accept. I was applied to the University of Washington Law School. I got accepted, which surprised me because I didn't feel that I had that good of grades. But I got accepted. It was obvious that I didn't. I couldn't do that. I, there's no. I didn't have any other ways to support myself or her. And and incidentally, she 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 was pregnant very quickly after we were married, like nine months and f- fourteen seconds later. <laughs> <laughs> I had been working for an office equipment company in Seattle, in which it was called Electrocraft. Yeah, I was doing pretty well there. I was selling a lot of equipment, etc. And so they offered me a job at eight hundred dollars a month at that time, which was a lot of money. And and off, and I'd have a title. I'd be a sales manager for this dictation equipment that we were selling. And then they had another offer from the insurance company, $400 a month for six months. And so I, t- I was managing at the time five apartment houses, and I talked to my the owner, who, who sort of was a mentor to me, and he told me, he said, John, he says, when you are in the insurance business, aren't you really sort of in your own business? And I said, yeah, you, I guess you could say that. And he said, well, if you're worth $800 a month to somebody, you're worth a hell of a lot more than that to, to yourself. Just think about that. So I took his advice, and I took the $400 a month job. For six months was a guarantee. I went to the insurance business, and I was a flop. I mean, I wasn't good. I was horrible. I didn't know it because I'd never met anybody. I was, I was, I was, when I was in college, I was having three or four jobs. I knew a few students, and that's about I didn't have any contacts with businesses or business owners. or So I'm calling on waitresses and, and gas station attendants, you know, which is, weren't great prospects. So one day... I meet, see this kid, he's, his, his name is Bill Scarborough, and he is uh, delivering flowers 
for a company called R.O. Rupin Flores. And I said, Bill, Bill, I said, how would you like to carry something differently than those flowers around town, like a briefcase? And he said, would you pay me? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, we'd pay you. Yeah, I said, I'd do it. So this guy was looked like, you know, Rock Hudson or Cary Grant. I mean, he's a great-looking kid, nice kid, great manners. I mean, he was just, you know, seemed like a perfect guy. So I taught him a sales talk. And, I mean, I really hammered him good and good. He could do a sales talk better than I could. It was just phenomenal. And about two weeks before that, I had gone to my ma- my manager and I asked him, I said, I, you know, I, th- I think I'm not doing very well selling. He says, you're telling me. <laughs> he sa- I said, so what I think I need to do, I think I'll be a great manager. And he says, John, don't even go there. He says, I'm not sure we're going to be able to keep you as a salesman, let alone as a manager. So anyhow, I bring this Bill guy up, Bill Scarborough, and I introduce him to my boss. His name was Dwight Mason. Introduced him, and then I shut up, and he went through the sales talk. This sales talk was Broadway. I mean, he was phenomenal. He was exciting. He was funny. I mean, he was persuasive. When he got done, I could tell that my 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 boss, my the manager, was, was t- totally impressed. And I said, okay, that's my first recruit, and if you don't, want me to be his manager and you don't want us to come in here, I just know with someone that can do a sales presentation that well that there are a lot of insurance companies in the city will hire me. So it's, it's up to you. Do you want me here or do you want me someplace else? So he said, okay, 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 go ahead. And so we hired this kid, and was, which was interesting. He became the rookie of the year of the entire United States the first year for this company. So I figured, you know, there's something I can do. I can, I'm, a, I'm a manager. Rather than and, aden- and you can identify talent. Yeah, and I, that's right. I didn't think so much about that, but I did think I was, I thought, you know, I, you know, there's something, I might not be the best salesman. He did very well, and, and so I was there for a couple of years, and I started my own business, and it was called MCM. And over the years, you know, we grew it, and we, we haven't, we, we, I, sold, I sold it a few years ago. We grew to about 100 employees, and, and we had all, not just, not just life insurance, we had all sorts of insurance. We had, you know, property, care, every, every type of insurance you could buy. My secret to success in that company was, which is kind of what you said, Marty, I really picked good people. And we, we had people staying with us 30 years, 40 years, 20 years. It was just amazing how we, you know, how we kept people. During that period of time, and I'll come to this later, but during that time, I went to work, I became a, a board member of a number of companies. And I saw there how they treated their employees and how well that worked and how they really, that became a focal point of, of business. That was uh, do, going well, and you know, I had to start the company. And, and I was now, I was, is, you know, trying to make a living, you know, and I'm, I have a child and another one on the way. And, and I was hoping that I would, you know, really start to do well. And, you know, and I've been, my whole, my whole life has been one of luck. I mean, I just, obviously, as you say, you got you to gotta work at things to be lucky, but I absolutely, Absolutely, I would I would say my partner in life was love, luck. I'll give you a couple of examples. One day I'm at the office, and out of the blue, a man calls me from a bank in Everett that I'd been working with, and he said, "John, we have this medical building up in Everett, and we'd like you to buy it." And I remember I told him, I said, "Sure." He said, "Why don't we take the Empire State Building? We'll do a twofer." <laughs> and he laughed. He said, no, we're serious. I said, I have no way to buy that building. I have any size. And he said, John, what are banks for? We lend money, we'll lend you the money. So we bought that building. And that building, we had it for a few years, a couple, two or three years. And when we sold it, I'd had a million, I had a million dollars. Well, 
Can you imagine what a million dollars was to someone who had gone through what I've gone through? Well, and that kind of got me going. And uh, how old were you at this point? Gosh, you know, I must have been 27, something like that, maybe. And you started your company in 19... 19- so that was about 1970 when that happened. A million dollars at 27. Yeah. When was the first time you had a house? Well... When I got, <laughs> that's a funny story. When I got out of the Navy, I, just, I had the GI Bill. First of all, I never lived in a house when I was a kid. Never, never. We always lived up above the store, which never bothered me. It never, it never dawned on me that I was missing something. You know, like I, poor me, I'm living in a, you know, upstairs of a, of a, a variety store. But I had, now I had a wife and a child and another one on the way. And so there was a GI Bill. And if you put $50 down, you could buy a house. You know, and, about, and, and so I was buying about a, I think it was a $25,000 home, you know, 20, I think it was 25000 And I remember I put $50 down, $50, and I, then I changed my mind. I thought that this isn't the house I really wanted. So I called up and asked if I could get my money back. <laughs> I think back to myself, what was, what was that guy thinking when I called him, you know? <laughs> and I was worried, that they, you know, that money was probably gone, you know, because $50 was $50. So I bought that house. It was, I think it was $25,000 home. Yeah, I, I'm not sure, but, but it, was, it wasn't very expensive. And, and, uh, in a, and it wasn't in the worst, you know, it was in part of Seattle. And, but Seattle hadn't grown yet, and so uh, it was all right. You know, it was pretty exciting having that house, you know. That was the first time you owned a house. First time I owned a and house. And you were at that point, how old? I think, well, I think, I think uh, you know, 20, as you know, it's probably 28 now or 27, 28, you know. Yeah. First time you bought a house yeah. and you have a million dollars. And I have a million dollars. I started, you know, looking around for investments and stuff. And, and I met this man by the name of Jeff Brotman, who was a lawyer. And so I, and somebody said, you got to see this guy, because I was starting to make investments, which is quite a story. You know, as you start to meet people, I started meeting people. As an example, I was referred to this man. He owned a funeral home. And I, this guy says, John, you got to meet this guy. He's rich. He's really, he'd be a great client, blah, 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 blah. So, so I call him up. His name is Maurice Schumann. And I ask him if I could, you know, meet with him and blah, 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 blah. He says, for life insurance? You're crazy? No. And, and he, hung, he hung up. Well, I was pretty persistent then. So I called him back. I said, hi. I, you know, just, you know, I'm sure we got disconnected. He says, we didn't get this. I just hung up on you. I said, well, that's because you don't know me. I told him. And he started laughing. He says, he says, you're unbelievable. He says, what do you do? And I told him, I said, well, he says, I'll, tell you, I'll meet with you. I'll, I'll have a car pick you up. I'll pick you up down in front of your building uh, tomorrow at 11 o'clock. And I said, uh, no, no, I'll drive there. I know how to get there. Do you hear, do you hear what? Can you know, listen well, he told me? He says, I'll pick you up tomorrow at 11 o'clock. So I, so I go down there. There's a hearse in front of my building. That's who he said to pick me up. I'm riding this damn hearse all the way back to, all the way back to, to uh, uh, Everett. And he and I became close friends. In fact, he's the one I first played Bighorn with. That's the first time I ever heard of Bighorn. But that was years and years later after I'd met him that time. But that was kind of a funny time. And then, so I, I'm now I'm in the now I'm in the insurance business. And but I'm trying to. And I meet this Jeff Brotman, and he's going to help me minimize my taxes. He sets me up with a defined benefit pension plan, and I had it for two years before they changed the law. Now, when they changed the law. You can still have your defined benefit pension plan, but you're, you can start a new one. You couldn't, you couldn't put any money in it like I was doing it because I was an employee. 
So I turned turn it into an IRA, and I just kept it up myself. Well, that little plan, incidentally, has really grown over the years. Because one, one nice thing about a retirement plan is you never sell any assets, usually. I mean, you can, but you, you probably don't because it's, you know, it's taxable, and you know if it stays there, it's non-taxable. So that little that retirement plan, that, that uh, I think 75000 which is 150000 150, I had in that plan, you know, really, uh, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it really grew to unbelievable. It's just, it's, it's, it's amazing. But it's compound interest. It's nothing magic. It's just compound. But you have that for 40, you know, 45 years and never taking a penny out of it. And so, and so I still have that, that retirement plan, incidentally. Now I'm in business and I'm, you know, and I meet Jeff. And Jeff, incidentally, later started Costco. So I met all sorts of people because of him, and he and he and I became good friends. In fact, I'm, I I was the godfather to his uh, children. He was just an amazing man. He and I just did a lot of things together. We got into about three businesses that all failed, and then he started Costco with a man named Jim Senegal. I helped him raise money for Costco. I I think I we I think we raised. Uh, I don't know. I think it was like a million dollars or something with my our firm did, and and I was part of that. And they only raised like seven million dollars, and they only planned to have seven locations. And today, I think they have eight hundred. And so, and they asked me to go on their board. When they asked me to go on their board, I really didn't hardly know what a board meant at that time. You know what I mean? And so I I thought, you know, well, he's just being nice because he we were good friends. And I won't stay on there very long because they're going to get somebody from Macy's and Kim, you know, t- Kimmel's and some of these other large department stores to come on the board. Or, you know, you know, one thing I do, I love I was there and, and we and the company started to progr- do, you know, and I was I was involved in the company to the extent that I got to know all the senior executives and I helped many of them in business and in, you know, with their insurance and investments, et cetera. So I always never I never really felt that I was, you know, I was really had kind of the background to be that, you know, on the board. Like, well, at that time, it wasn't much of a story. There, were, there was a company in Seattle called Wall, uh, Far, uh, uh, Whitefront, and there was another one called GovMart, and they all failed. All you know, the companies like this all failed. And so when we went out to sell it, everybody said, hey, they've already done this two, two or three times in Seattle, and it didn't work. It started to work. I remember the, the day we went, the day that opened, uh, my wife and I went out to, to the store to, with the opening. She was looking for some uh, some uh, Waterford glass because she heard that there was Waterford and it was a great buy. So she went over to buy it and she couldn't. And then they were sold out. They'd sold out all of it. And so Jim came, you know, introduced Jim and, and she tells him, you know, I was going to try. He said, I'll get, I'll, I'll make you sure you get it. And I thought to myself, sure, <laughs> sure he will. You know, he's got all these people. He's got all this money. He's got all this liability and face in front of him. And, you know, because everything was done, done on it. Nobody had any money. Jim, Jeff, none of us did of any consequence. About a week later, Jim calls, you know, and says, I have your water for glass. And that told me something about him. I mean, this guy, as busy as he was, he did that. I mean, and this was his, this was his style forever. I remember one time at a board member, there's a big department store in Seattle, they were selling these shirts for, for $100, these shirts, two-button button shirts, dress shirts, and Jim had we had him on this in Costco for seventy nine ninety nine, and so he was telling us this. And the next board may we come, he's got him down to fifty to forty nine ninety nine. And I and I said to Jim <laughs> privately, I said, Jim, you know, I mean, you know, they're doing well at seventy nine ninety nine. He says, John, you don't understand. 
our, the major the major goal for for me for this company is to reduce prices. Period. Next time we come to a meeting that is down to let's say twenty nine ninety nine, it's being sold for still ninety nine at a, at a department store, and then he goes down to nineteen ninety nine. And today those shirts are still selling. They sell millions and millions and millions of these shirts, button down shirts, beautiful material for nineteen ninety nine. But his goal, number one goal, was to take care of employees. Number two goal was to to make sure that he was providing value for his customer. And number three was, you know, shareholders. It was the third in line. And we got all sorts of criticism for it because we were paying the employees too much money. They thought many of our all-owner employees get way too much money. And the company can't afford to do that. And they were giving them raises when we're losing money. And we were kind of like Amazon was when they first started. Everybody said, you know, these guys, these guys aren't making money. They might be a little, they might be doing some business. But and so, and today I think they've got 800 stores. And I, have, incidentally, was on the board for 35 years. 35 years on that board, which is incredible, uh, you know. And really, you know, met some fabulous people and had some great experiences. And you know, went through we, you know, Costco went through some tough times, like every other company has. But they're really, you know, they really are uh, take care of their people. I mean, I learned a lot being on that board, taking care of people, uh, being being fair, uh, working hard, finding great people, challenging them, uh, having goals. I mean, all those things that we all know. To, to, I mean, most businesses know, but they really lived up to it. They they really had a, a culture that really it was amazing, and it still is. It still is. Uh, Craig Jelnick now is the man. He was there for 25 years, and you know they they're just a, they're just a phenomenal company. John, too, uh, in this because uh-huh. this is a big story with Costco. Uh-huh. You said that there were other people that were doing the same thing. Yes, that weren't successful. Right, right. My experience too of Seattle is that people like doing business with people who live there, who yes. are part of the community. Right, right, right. The community's ability to support them is also an important factor with people succeeding. That's Don't you true. think at that time t- in t- Seattle? T- totally, totally. Yeah. And you know, their people were reluctant, you know, really reluctant. And they just kind of went out there to see what, what it was. And, and they saw it, and they couldn't believe the prices because the prices were just really low. As an example, one time that we were negotiating buying tires from a couple of different tire firms, and they offered $5 million to become the vendor. And Jim took one of them, but he took the $5 million, and he reduced the price of tires. That's what he did all the time. His goal, he says, my goal in this company, and Jelnick is the same thing who is the current president, is to reduce reduce prices. That's our goal. We want to reduce prices. We kind of, The reason they went into start a chicken factory is because they wanted to reduce That's the only way they could do it. They have a, what they call a four ninety nine hot dog and Coke. And it's that way, it's been that way for 35 years. That's how long they've been in business. And the only way they could do that, they had to manufacture their own hot dogs to keep it at that price. Because they, they don't sell anything at a loss. Nothing gets sold at a loss, period. You were talking about there was a store that was selling this at 90-some-odd dollars. Yes, right. It is a business of relationships. Yeah. You're, you were talking about luck. Well, it's not luck in your life. Right, there, right. There's some opportunities, yeah. for sure. But the fact is that it is all about relationships. Yeah. We used to call them the Rolodex. Yes, you know? right. <laughs> right. You sure. had a pretty impressive Rolodex. Yeah, yeah eventually did. 
one night I, I was at the office working, and uh, this is after Costco, and I get a call from this man. His name is, his name is um, he called me about uh, going to work, becoming a director of Expeditors, a multi-billion dollar company. You know, I don't even know you, you know. And so, yeah, well, I've heard a lot about you, blah, 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 blah. Anyhow, I went to work, and I was there with that company for 22 years. Great company, wonderful guys. Uh, they're a logistic company. The first co- company I was on the board of was a bank, and that was a similar thing. I'd just known the bank for a while. It was a, it was a savings and loan. You know, you just, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you just start to pick things up. It helps you to try to understand how people think and how, how what the difference is between executives and, and their and their missions and their objectives and then you get to meet their families i mean it was a really it was really a great a great experience doing that and i was i was on maybe four or five different boards and i'm on only on a couple anymore and i resigned at costco this year just this year just because i thought you know john 35 years is you know it's a long time to be on any, do anything you know john tell me in seattle in the northwest tell me just some of the companies that you've been involved with at their very start. I was I was an investor more than I was in, in anything. Like Starbucks was a good example. I was I remember going to see Howard Schultz. Jeff Brotman and I heard about him from one of my clients, and we went out to see him. And Jeff knew him. I was very impressed with Howard Schultz. I, I was a very impressive, impressive guy, but I wasn't going to invest. He calls me up and asks me, and I said, no. And he says, why? And I said, I don't think you're a manager. I think you're a salesman. <laughs> and obviously, I was dead wrong, but there's a lot of stories like that. But, yeah, you know, that was, there was a whole bunch of companies over the years that we were involved with that, that really did well. And, and we, we got to know the management, and, and a lot of them we did some insurance business with. Or, or we just, you know, just got to know them. One of the big things that happened to me during this career is that uh, I got a call from this woman who was the, one of the main representatives or, or stars for uh, the big uh, banks in Seattle. And so she, and she told me about, she said, there's a school here in Seattle called Zion Prep. And he said, that school is going to get kicked out of their building. They're in this old Catholic school, and they, put, and they, they have a building to go to that they had a relationship with the state. The state had to have so many dollars to keep this this relationship going so that they could move there, and uh, they just didn't have it. And they try, tried to get them to get you know get an extension. They'd got three or four extensions, and so this was they were losing it. And want to know if I'd talk to him. So I met with this man. His name was Doug, and his his wife's name was Patricia. And so I met with him. And so uh, we met at the Fairmont Hotel for for breakfast. And we he goes to this whole thing. And I said, you know. What you need is you need a board, because I've been, you know, I had all these experience with boards. So I said, what you need is a board. You need a foundation board, somebody to go out and raise money for you. And, on, and I'll never forget, he told me, he says, John, we don't want a bunch of white guys running this business. <laughs> and I love that. I thought, you know, the guy's got balls. I mean, he's really, you know, he's not afraid to say something. And so he and I became great friends. A year later, he called me up and said, John, we're, we're dying. So we went to work, and it's probably one of the best things I've ever done in my life. I got the president of Seattle First National Bank. We had Boeing. We had Boeing in there, one of their senior executives. We had we had Starbucks, the head, head of Starbucks, president of Starbucks. We had Costco. Jim Senegal went on the board. I mean, we had we and we had about I don't know if, if I gave you the list of all those board companies, you would you know say wow. 
it was at a time where they weren't being asked to go on boards or what I don't know what but anyhow I had must had 15 or 20 senior executives that decided to come they were going to go on that board to help these kids uh, we started that and we and we and we knew we had to get 2 million we had to get two about two and a half million dollars in order to to keep this this school because they had delayed it somehow and so we we knew if we had but we had to get two and a half million and none of us you know could really afford that much or even close to it so one of the guys said you know what we should do he said we need to get costco to uh loan the money to us and get seattle first national to loan the money to costco (laughs) today you couldn't do that with all the rules there are today but anyhow that's what happened we got two and a half million dollars and we kept that school alive. Then I went to work, and I started something where we had a, a fundraiser in the morning. It was at 7 o'clock in the morning. You get there at 7, you're out at 8. We went in there to ask for money. We, we put on a performance to give them sh- show what was going on, how the kids were doing, what, how they were succeeding, what were the problems were. And we started that, and we, were, we raised millions and millions and millions of dollars. And pretty soon everybody started doing breakfast meetings. But that was the first fundraiser. And so... We do that. We did that once a year, and then we had a five-year commitment. In other words, you, you could you could raise the money. You could either write your check for you know ten thousand dollars or whatever it was. What we really tried to sell was a five-year commitment. Well, that five-year commitment, I'll tell you, created wonders because we got tons of people to do the five-year commitment. So what we had is we had reoccurring revenue. So reoccurring revenue for that school was unbelievable because we could hire teachers. So now I'm really involved in this thing. I mean, if they have a problem. John Meisenbaum is going to solve it. These African-American kids, I mean, the amount of issues they have go through, I mean, their brothers are getting shot, their sisters are getting raped. I mean, it's just absolutely, you can't believe it. You can't believe anybody comes out of that hole. It's so sad. It's a little better today, but still a real problem. That school really had an impact on my life and to the point where I really saw this was really exciting. Got the taste of philanthropic activity and so that really got me started and on trying to do some other things nothing's ever equaled zion prep that had a huge impact on my life my wife and i decided we wanted to do something charitable because we never done much we thought you know minimal stuff other than the zion thing we thought we'd do something for the school what we decided to do is do something not for the kids not for the athletes but for the teachers so we set up a, 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 an account or a foundation called mary meisenbach it's my mother's name mary meisenbach excellence in teaching award given to a teacher every year the school jumped into it and they liked it and so they've got about a thousand kids in that school now and so what we do is they put this vote out for the teachers teachers would vote on it the kids could vote on it and the community could vote on it and then they have this big uh, assembly once a year where i would give this award to a teacher and the teacher didn't know who was getting it, you know, who would, and the teacher, they would have the teacher's family hidden away someplace. And then I would take the teacher, give him a $10,000 gift for winning the award. And I'd take the teacher and his family, his wife, and the principal of the school, and we'd all go out to dinner. So I get to the school, and they, <laughs> they say, you know, we want you to meet some of these students. You know, the school did. So they, what they wanted me to meet is four or five kids that were having financial trouble, thinking that, you know, maybe I could help them. We started to put these kids through college. We've got about 70 kids now that have gone through college through that program, which has just been amazing. And, and you know, sending a kid to college, giving him enough money to go to college, is, you know, paying the tuition, et cetera, is important. But what you don't realize, there's a lot more expense than just getting, you know, getting into college. You've got, you got room, you got some place to live. If they don't have you provide that in the tuition, you've got books, you've got 
gas, you know, you've got rent possibly, you know, you've got computer issues. I mean, on and on and on and on. So I finally hired this woman. So she's working with him now, which has really made a huge improvement. We didn't do that, though. For <laughs> You know, you think about how stupid you can be sometimes not realizing, you know, it was tough for them to find, to find money to pay for all these expenses just to go to college. But so we've, we've graduated. That school, incidentally, has a 95% graduation rate and has had for years, 95%. Wonderful. The teachers, the teachers are just, I mean, they're just, a, I don't know why, but it's been phenomenal, phenomenal education. But that's, that's those, those two things of sign prep and then, the, and then well, that, well, there was one other one. My daughter, she got excited about some of the things that I've done. And so she decided that she was going to help the school, a very similar situation only, but she really had, she changed this whole thing that was down in, 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 uh, in uh, San Francisco, or right out of San Francisco. And so there were all these kids, and, and they, they, don't, they had no mentorships. And so she went out to all her friends in the, in the church she was going to, et cetera, and, and all the people she could get. She raised, she got 200 people to be mentors to these kids, to spend at least one afternoon a week. Unbelievable. And then she started a chess club for them. And these kids who had never played chess in their life were winning tournaments, winning chess, you know. And she hired a woman from Guatemala, I believe, to, that was a chess, one of the ch- a champion. I mean, she was, a, she was rated as some of the highest you can rate as a, to be a chess player. She works for school full time, which we help fund. It's called RISE, R-I-S-E. That's the name of the foundation she set up. She's taken me and done so much more. It's just What she's done is just absolutely incredible and changed this whole school. And it's a public school. That's been exciting to be, get involved in that. In the meantime, obviously, we're running a business and having all the other things to go through it. But those things start to dominate your thinking, you know, to the point where you think, well, you know what? What well, really gets me turned on, you can do something for someone that, they're really, that they really need because there's so many needs. I'm involved in this organization called Abundance 300, Abundance 300. And so one of the things they, they want you to do is, or they suggest that you do is that you come up with a, a major goal in life, a major goal for you that would really change people's lives. So my goal is that it seems to me, a little background first, it seems to me that if you take a look at kids today, you find that when they get out of high school or even college, they don't understand two minutes about finance. Second thing is that they've had very, very poor training in terms of being monitored or taught by their parents. Parenting has not been a high priority for many parents. In fact, they don't even think about it as parenting. They just think, I've got these kids, you know, and I'm going to do the best I can or whatever. And then the third thing is that so many of these kids end up being divorced. So my goal is to get the Educational Association of the United States for public schools to change the curriculum, to put in three subjects— you don't have to change anything. All you have to do is take out three subjects. Maybe you take out Latin. How often do you use Latin? Maybe you take out trigonometry. How long? You, I mean, subjects like that. Subjects that really are not useful for anybody. And so you put in there, you'd put in financial management, parenting, marriage. Those three subjects. And my goal is I'm making some progress. I'm, <laughs> I'm a long ways from there, but I got a long way. I mean, I've got a lot of time to do it, but I'm, I'm gradually, I think it's a possibility because it, the Educational Association, educa- who is the problem in getting anything, but you're not changing the whole thing. All you're doing is, is inserting some subjects that and taking a couple of ways away. And these are real life skills. Yes. I mean, you're talking about finance. You know, what's interest on a credit card? Also, Marriage, not always what you see in the movies, and yeah. here's some things that yeah. you should know. And 
how do you train children? You know, I mean, how do you, what's, how can you be a role model? I mean, what do you, what are some of the things you need to do? You, you can't be smoking dope, you know, you can't be beating your wife. You're their role model and you're whatever you are is usually pretty close to what they're going to become. Not always, but sometimes it's the opposite. But most of the time, that's it. You're the huge, huge role model for your kids. And so they look at you and they, you know, whether they tell you this or not, but you are a very important person to those kids yeah and so i think if i could get those three things changed that would be a monumental goal change and be a monumental objective and to accomplish this goal you need to talk to obviously decision makers in the education system not an easy thing to do you brought up unions before yeah yeah. that's an issue yeah but the reason it isn't an issue because the union doesn't have to change anything all they got to do is take latin out of the damn (laughs) curriculum it's not as hard as it might sound to get three those three things changed. And so if I could get those three changed, and I don't need to have the title of being someone that did that. I This isn't it. an ego trip. It's <laughs> absolutely not. But I mean, if we could just get it done. Another thing that I know you've been very involved in, John, over time, I mean a long time, right, right. is mentoring. Yes, right. You enjoy it. You do it well. Yeah. Tell me, how does that come about? People come to you. You seek right, them right. out. And then you also have to tell me the story. I brought us up with you in conversation. Tell me about the shoeshine part of that equation when you mentor people, or men especially. When I first started in business, I said I told you guys, and I don't know where I read this. It was, it was, I think it was Aristotle on Assis. It's one of the things he said. You always have to have shine shoes. Your haircut has to be, you know, it's not long and shaggy and stuff like that. You also have to be wearing a suit. You also have to have a, a white shirt. You've got to have a white shirt. You know, there's a lot of truth in that. You know, today, you don't see a tie. You know, so a tie really gains you something. It might lose you something, too. One, one time when I was on a plane from Bighorn going to Seattle, I somehow was thinking that I wanted to have a Rolls Royce. I thought that would really be fun. <laughs> and so I'm looking through the paper in the Los Angeles one ads, and I see this Rolls Royce for $25,000. And so I checked it out. I had a had the dealer in, in Los Angeles go look at it. And it was okay. And so I said, okay. And so I sent my wife down to California to drive it back. And so she and her dad drove it back. And now I've got a Rolls Royce. It's a 1971 Rolls Royce Shadow, I think it was. And it was uh, kind of a brown, metallic brown, beautiful car. It, it did everything but run right. And I'm at a meeting one day, and I'm presenting this insurance. And the guy looks out the window, and he sees this Rolls Royce. He says to me, he says, is that your car? <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> he says, get out of here. <laughs> what do you mean? He says, listen, I'm not going to do any business with some guy who drives a Rolls Royce. And, and people in Seattle, I got more crap from that car. I mean, you could guys would have you know five hundred thousand dollar million, two million dollar boats that sat there for all year, dri- driven once or twice, no problem. But me with a twenty five thousand dollar car, they're giving me. I'm getting all the crap in the world, and people still to this day, John. Hey, John, how's that? How's that Rolls doing? <laughs> <laughs> you got to know your audience. Oh my God, it was just terrible. It was just. It was funny though, and I had some problems with it. One time it was snowing in Seattle, and it broke down. It was always breaking down. And I get towed home, and I get home, and they unhook the couple, and it's sitting like that, and, and without any compression because of the the way the car's doing. 
pressure switch on got it and it started going downhill and I could there was no brake and I'm going to my garage and my garage unfortunately I opened my garage door but I had the chance of trying to hit one of these stalwarts or go to the back end I chose to go to the back end <laughs> my wife was sleeping at the time as you know she thought we were bombed <laughs> but then <laughs> it gets worse so so not too long after that, it was like two months after that, I'm going to work. I was going. I always used to go to work about 5 in the morning, 5 or 6 in the morning. And so it's 5.30 in the morning. I'm going out to the garage. I go to the garage. I get in the garage, and I think I hit the switch to turn the, uh, you know, open the door. And the car is this way, so you're not looking at the door when you back out. And so I, I charged the car on, hit the bam, <laughs> right through the garage door again. <laughs> She's about ready to have me committed, you know. <laughs> was that the end of the Rolls Royce? Yeah, that Pretty was quick. the end of the Rolls Royce, yeah. <laughs> I think I finally gave it away to some charity, so I don't know. Those are a few of the stories. There's, t- there's tons of them. And so, but today... Today, I'm, I sold the business. I'm still chairman of the company, but that's just in, in really a name only. But I've been more involved in investments and in a number of different organizations that we're, we use. And I've, I've hired two or three people that do nothing but look for investments for me. And I have a uh, house manager. My wife died about seven years ago, six, seven years ago. My wife died. I have a full-time house manager. And uh, I'm doing a lot of little business deals which are a lot of fun, and, so, and some of them have done really well. Some of them have done real well. And so my goal is to get that educational thing done. I would really like to get that thing f- set up. One day I asked myself, well, you know, what is my purpose? And I'm saying, you know, because for years I had the purpose of just, you know, paying the bills. And then you had the purpose of, you know, trying to make a better company. Then you had the purpose of trying to, to help people and, and all sorts of But eventually you get to the point where I think we say, you know, what am I really trying to accomplish here? And so it really makes you sit and think, you know about what is really important. You know, having a home, having a car, it's all nice, but you gotta have some sort of a purpose that you really, that drives you, that really that really makes you wake up in the morning and you wanna say, let's, let's go get them. And the answer for you is? You know, I think it's more in the area of trying to put something together like this, this thing for these kids in college. Now, I love deals, like you know, investing in things. I invested in something this morning. I love to see how that works and get to know the people involved. I like to figure out how to get more excited about when you get up in the morning. So I'm, you know, I'm a pretty happy guy. I've got a great girlfriend, as you met, and I've got a great business. And uh... and to John, as an investor, this is an aside. How do you view the market now? With you'd mentioned GameStop. How do you view the market now with this? huge fluctuation in stock prices. I've always thought we're going to see a big, big crash. I've kept a lot of cash aside for that opportunity, and I still do. Because I think this thing has got to right itself because so many stocks are just absolutely off the chart. And you just can't believe that this can continue. You just can't believe it. And one of the reasons it is continues because no one can believe it. I mean, that's sort of the story of the stock market. Once everybody thinks that this is fine, you know, then that's when it will probably take it down. But my sense is that it is highly over overpriced. However, I take the United States as 340 million people, but if you take the world, which has billions of people... Where are they going to invest their money? What country is better than the United States to invest money? And if they are going to invest their money in the United States, where are they going to put it in? Real estate? I don't think so. Cryptocurrency? I don't know, but it seems to me the stock market is the, the logical place to put that's really had some growth over a period of time and continues to grow even when it's not supposed to. And that when you think of all the world 
whether it's China or Russia or the UK or wherever, where are they, what are people, what is their favorite place to, you know, invest money? It's the United States. That has a tendency to keep the stock up, I think. I think that's a big part of it. And then I think we do it, we ourselves, you know, the TV commentaries and all the information that's available about stock. And we're seeing people make millions and millions of dollars investing in the stock market. One of the things I've always done is I've always had stops on my, which I know a lot of people don't agree with, but I have had stops on almost all my purchases, not all of them. Costco, I've never had a stop on, but every, but every, but just about you know almost everything else I have a stop on, which means that you know what it means. But for, but for the listener, it means that if stock goes to a certain price, it's it supposedly is going to be sold, and ninety five percent of the times they will sell at that price. Not a hundred percent, but ninety five. And so, and that's you know that gives you some protection, but uh, you probably shouldn't have all your eggs in that basket either. I don't know the answer. I don't think I'm not sure anybody does, but I'll tell you, there's a there's a lot of great companies out there today that are doing well, and a lot of them are going to do better. It's just amazing. Uh, what's the opportunity today in the stock market? Well, as you told me, two of the, all the Seattle companies that you invested in, the only one that you didn't quite understand at the start was Amazon. Yeah, I understood it. It was the wrong thing to buy and invest in. That's what I understood, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, I had one of my closest friends, Share, it was, it was on their board and a big shareholder, and, and he's telling me it's a $4 a share. Today it's 3300 So he's telling me that, you know, this is, John, this thing is really, come on, you know, $4 a share, and they're trying to sell books? You give me a kidding. Costco, same thing. When Costco was getting started, people say, you kidding me? That's all. It's, it's you know, it's just been tried so many times. No, it's not, no way it's going to do. Why would I, why would I pay money to work to buy, buy merchandise? Yeah. And John, let me ask you just a couple of questions that sure. we ask most of our guests and get your answers to these. Who has had the greatest influence on your life? And it could be multiple people. Well, I think my wife, you know, 45 years, I think she had a huge impact on me. I think Jeff Brotman had a big impact on me because of his, you know, his his ability. He, he could talk to premiers of, you know, of countries. I mean, he had the ability, he had the ability to communicate with people that were presidents or emperors or whatever, you know, so he taught me. And then Jim Senegal, who is also, you know, was one of their, you know, I think he's had a big impact on me. I, I think uh, Len Evans, who is a partner of mine, my daughter has had a big impact on me, what she's done. It's really got my attention. And my sons, I really, you know, I mean, you know, I think you learn a lot from your kids. I mean, there's so much to learn. I mean, there's, there's books out today that are so phenomenal, talking about things that none of us ever heard about. What qualities do you look for in people that work with you? You know, when I meet somebody, people have a tendency to fill a role. And when you when you're sitting, if I'm interviewing you for a job, you're you come in there, and I don't really see you. I see you as you maybe you'd like to be, instead of how you really are. So if I take you out, we go get a shoe shine. I see how you treat the shoe shine guy. I see how you interface with him. If we go out, stop by and get a cup of coffee. I mean, it really it tells me a lot about this person. So I, I look for that, and I look for someone who, who seems to have some passion for something. And I'm looking for someone, too, that is not a yes person. I mean, I think people are so often, you know, they want to hire. So it's, well, no matter what I say, it, it's fine. It's not fine. Some, some of the things I say need to be changed. But I think it's getting somebody, getting somebody you know, you're seeing somebody without, without their clothes on. You're seeing somebody, you know, with how they really are. How would you describe your management philosophy? 
I believe you've got to find good people and get out of their way. Let them make mistakes. Give them the ability to improve. As an example, one of the things that I think I did a horrible job in is we had all these, you know, we had 45 years of effort. And I had some, you know, women that were making maybe $100,000 a year, 100000 They should have been making three hundred. As an example, if you have a company and somebody's helping you achieve a certain objective, and as an example, I have one of my friends today is working for this company. The guy is worth... What did she say? Uh, some six hundred million dollars, and he has this rule that you have you have uh, you know two weeks off a year. But if you, any day you take off to go to get a doctor appointment, that's considered a day off. Well, come on, you know. I mean, things like that. The other thing is, every time I, I hired someone that my wife says I wouldn't think so, they failed. So I think women have a better judge of people than men do. And so I always, if I'm if I were hiring someone today, I'd take I'd take Deborah and have her meet him with me, because I think they they somehow see the the, the the bullshit faster than I do, you know. And, Interesting and yeah. true, I think. Probably. I think it is true. I think it is true. I think they they really have a they have a sense of this is a good person, somebody you want to do business with, and you know. And I ask myself, would I would do business with this person? Would I listen to this person? One of the things that I have mentioned might be interesting to the to the, your audience. This kid comes in, I ask him, so what's your major? He says, business. I said, business. So I said, what Starbucks are you going to work for? He said, what are you talking about? I said, when you get out of, you get out of school, that's what you're going to have an opportunity is working in a Starbucks or something like it. He, he says, so, so what would you do? I said, I would major in accounting. He said, why accounting? Well, first of all, if you're an accountant, you've got a major in accounting, you can become a CPA. The business world is wide open to you. You can almost do anything. Somebody will hire you because you're an accountant. They won't hire you because you're major in business. The other thing is when you get out of college, you can make seventy, eighty thousand a year day one. Day one. You know? Whereas if you major in business, you're probably gonna make, you know, thirty thousand a year to start out with someplace. Unless unless you're unbelievably, you know, smart and you got all these contacts in the world. And then also, if you if you get if you become a, a, an accountant, you want to decide you wanted to to go to work for one of your one of your uh, clients. Your company says fine. We love that. That doesn't that helps us because that person also becomes a client. Everybody that I've told that to has has told me I can't think enough. All I have tons of clients who I think have medium to poor relationships with their spouse. Tons of people that I know. Now they won't admit it. But if you really get to know them well and you see them, there's only a very few that really seem to really have it together. So what I'm telling people, the most significant thing I tell them is you take your wife by herself, the two of you, every day, rain, snow, sleet, whatever, hurricanes, for a walk. It can be five minutes, can be 30 minutes, can be an hour. But do that every day. My promise, you're going to have a better marriage at the end of the day. And I'll tell you what, everybody that's done that, that I've told that to, John, you haven't said much that I agree with, but I agree with that. <laughs> you know. The last question, John, what advice would you give the 20-year-old you? Pick your friends wisely. You know. Because who you, it might be fun to be around might not be fun to, to be in business with, you know. Pick your friends wisely. Go to work. Give your job at least eight hours a day and really try to figure out how to make this most, you know, how to be most productive. I mean, really become a, become an expert on your, what you're doing. 
really, if you want to build something, you got you got to work at it. I know guys that are their wives have died, and so I say to them, so t- tell me what you're doing to have a relationship with a woman. I said, what do you mean? I said, what what are you doing to help you meet eligible women so you can you know, have another relationship like you had with your wife? Nothing. Nothing, nothing. It's just going to, oh, I see, it's just going to happen. Well, good luck. That doesn't usually work. If you really want to accomplish something, you got to work at it. you got to figure, you got to sit down and figure out. And the one thing we didn't talk about that was probably one of the, probably should have talked to you about, is going to the Pacific Institute. That whole concept of affirmation and... and uh, you want to explain a little bit about that? Sure. I was in, a, in the cocktail lounge at the Dublin House at the, in, in the Washington building, and I'm having a drink with a couple of guys, and I meet a guy by the name of Dallas Dixon, and he said to me, we're talking, and I said, what do you do? And he says, I work for the Pacific Institute. I said, what's that? And he says, well, it's a company that changes lives and gets people that are, that are doing okay to do phenomenal and get people that are phenomenal to, 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 you know, to, to, to break the four-minute barrier. I mean, it's just it's amazing. It's been amazing what they do. I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, it's, it's complicated, blah, 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 blah. He said, we have courses. And, he, and I said, how much is the course? He said, $600. $600 to me at that time was like a million. And I went to it. And the whole concept of Pacific Institute is that your mind really regulates your activities. And the fact is that your subconscious mind is so much more powerful than people realize. And so that there's ways to make yourself more than you are, more than you think you can be, by affirmations. And what an affirmation is, is you take something like, let's say you're 70 years old and you're in very bad health. And so you start, you do an affirmation that says, you know, I am in excellent health. You do an affirmation, which is a statement. In fact, I'm in excellent health. My body functions are working as best they have in, in tw- 25 years or what. And you somehow you, a statement of what you, what you want to be, but you say it in terms of this is the way I am. And that, you do that, and you do that every morning when you get up. You do that every night before you go to bed. And your subconscious will play tricks with you. And subconscious will take you when somebody says, I want to I wanna do this, or I want to earn this, or I want to do that. I mean, if I can show you person after person after person that it's just absolutely changed their entire life. And it certainly did for me. I mean, I can, t- I show, I can show you books I had with these affirmations, and you would think I was nuts with these affirmations. The guy's name was Lou Tice, and he took me for breakfast the next day. So I want to see you for breakfast. So we sat down for breakfast. He said, okay. So you seem like a pretty smart guy. He said, I'll tell you what. He says, I, tell me what you think I need to do. I want to. I'm like, I can only have this, this, this course like once a week. So I can only have like four a month. And, you know, I've got 25 people, and, and I don't know how I can, I don't know, I, I want to make more money. I don't know, I can't see, what, I, what would you do if you were me? I says, well, it's still simple. He says, what's that? I say, either you have more clients, you have more, more people, or you do it more often. That's all. He says, that's logic. I'm not interested in logic. I'm looking for creativity. That's what I want. I want a creative answer. And so what he did is he took that course that he had, and he put it on videotape, and he sold the video, and he sold 16 million people bought that tape. 16 million people. And this guy was a, a school teacher making 50000 a year before he started Pacific Institute. I can't tell you how many people I put through that course. I mean, I still do. That course has changed so many lives, it's unbelievable. John, I really want to thank you for doing this today. Oh, you're welcome. I know sometimes someone like yourself is humble, and they don't like sitting and talking about right, themselves. Right, right, right. But there's so much of what you talked about today that's going to impact other people when they listen to this broadcast. Oh, thank you. And that's the importance of yeah, this. Right. 
But again, thank you so much for doing it. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. And it's nice of you to do it. I hope that you enjoyed the great stories about perseverance, success, and giving back that John was kind enough to share with us today. We also hope you will continue to support the contributors that support our podcasts. Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, AT&T, and Back Nine Greens, whose support allows us to bring these great stories to you. We look forward to being back with you soon with more interesting people and their extraordinary stories on the Bighorn Podcast.